And welcome everybody into the first episode of the Mostly Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Chapman. My guest today, the winningest coach in Orlando Magic franchise history, now calling games for TNT with Ian Eagle. Stan Van Gundy joins me this week for the Mostly Magic Podcast. Stan, thanks so much for doing this. How you doing? I'm doing well, Jake. How about you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I appreciate your time. I know uh, there ain't much of it this time of year, but I was thinking about it, Stan. I don't You and I have never even really talked about this. I was hired full-time as Magic Radio producer in 2009, the year after the finals run. As producer, I was holed up in those studios in the basement at RDV Sportsplex. Uh, I'm sure you remember them. And between a seasonal intern each year and me, we would listen to and cut up all of the audio from you and all the players for the broadcast each night, practice audio, shoot around audio. And then I came to Detroit and I worked with you, uh, covering you with the Pistons, spent a lot of time together there. Stan, I think I've heard and cut up more of your audio than probably any any radio guy or any broadcaster in the country. Is that something I should brag about? No, it's probably something somebody should feel sorry for you about, <laughs> that you've had to listen to me that much. I mean, you've probably listened to me more than anyone about but my family, probably. And none of them are very happy about it. None of them are very happy about it. (laughs) Well, maybe we could form a support group or something like that. Uh, I will say this. I'm thankful for the fact, because I've also covered other head coaches. I'm very thankful for the fact that you give interesting answers, that you say what you think. And going back, and there were some lean times, um, having an honest and earnest uh, head coach answer questions. And I do appreciate all the time we spent in Detroit with Vince, with Keith, um, you were great to us. So thank you very much for, uh, for being a good subject. Well, I've always enjoyed the, uh, the media, uh, unlike maybe some coaches. I, I just, um, you know, sometimes the questions are tough. Sometimes you don't want to answer them. Sometimes you're in a bad mood after games. But when you got done with the actual media sessions and then could just sort of shoot the breeze with the guys who were there, people you had a lot in common with and a lot of really smart, really funny people. And, and so... Yeah, I've considered most everybody that's covered me uh, as a friend. One of the things you told me, and I and I repeat this, he told us this once. He said, I'm too dumb to lie to you guys. <laughs> you, you said, what I start lying to you guys? I'm going to end up getting caught. So you can basically trust that whatever you're, whatever I'm telling you is the truth. Now, there might have been a little, a, a slight lie in there, but every once in a while, you know, for, for competitive advantages, you have to sort of twist a little bit, but... You know, I, I wish more people thought about it that way. I, I never lied to the media. I, I just didn't. I, I didn't uh, do it. Now, I would avoid questions right. or I would take a question and not answer it directly and, you know, talk about something else. But but I can say that I never lied to the media. I never said anything that wasn't true, um, whether it was factual stuff or even my opinions on players or anything else. I mean, you know, there's ways I think that, you know, coaches, there's information you don't want to give out and you don't have to, but there's no reason in my opinion to, to lie. I mean, I just, I I think in the long run, that's a, that's a short term thing that you may think gets you out of a problem, but in, in the long run, you know, I think most people are pretty smart and pretty savvy and see through it. And once you lose your credibility um, as someone who's dishonest, then nobody's listening to you. And and I think by being honest, I I think the one thing I always had is people would give me a chance always to give my side of it because I think they knew 
I wasn't BSing them. And so, um, you know, I, I, I wanted that kind of credibility and it's just the right thing to do. Like, don't lie to people. Um, so it wasn't that hard. What about with players? I, I've heard this conversation in, and we don't have to get into specifics, but I've heard this conversation about Doc and Ben Simmons and everything going on there. I heard it about Dan Campbell, the head coach of the Lions, and some of the things he said about Jared Goff. Is it, is it, is it ever okay to, to, to put it out there to say we expect more or um, to, to sort of have that conversation with the media? Or do you, do you subscribe to the notion that it should always be in-house? You should never sort of air out that dirty laundry. I mean, I, I don't, it, it all depends on what you mean. Um, you know, I, I think for the most part, I tried to avoid really going after anybody in the right. press. But, you know, if you're going to ask me, you know, are you happy with the way so-and-so's playing? And no, I mean, we, we think he needs more. I, what I, the rule I tried to stick to was it had to be something that we had already talked about. Yep. Like, wasn't going to be something in the media that I've never approached the, the player about, but I've stepped over the line. I have, I, I've said things to the media that I shouldn't have put out there. I, I have said things that I wish I hadn't. And in those cases I've had to, you know, go to the player or players involved or even at times the team and just apologize and say, I was out of line. I mean, the bottom line is, listen, I mean, if you're coaching, um, and you're going to speak to the media every single day and very often on game days, multiple times, you know, then you're going to say some things that you wish you hadn't. And you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to apologize. And, and uh, I've had to do that more times than I would care to admit. But um, again, I think that's just. That's just being honest. I don't think I ever tried to weasel my way out of it. I, I don't think you you know you're going to find instances where you know I said something I shouldn't have said, and I oh they took it out of no no I said it and you know I was wrong. I mean I I, I just I don't know if that always serves you well, quite honestly, because you know even if you apologize, people it's out there. You know, and, and sometimes I've seen a lot of people who who do weasel their way out of it and maybe it works for them. But I think in the long run, like if you expect that level of accountability from other people, whether it be your players, your staff or anyone else, then you need to hold yourself accountable for those things. Well, and as you know, in today's day and age, the apology is never as amplified as the uh uh, as the original sin, right? Like I, the apology after the fact sort of gets buried at the bottom of the Twitter timeline and uh, and whatever it is you did that you're apologizing for is what gets splashed all over the, the front page. Yeah, to a degree. But you know what? I think a lot of that is because so many of the apologies are BS. Yeah, I mean, no, right. they are. They're BS. They're supposed apologies, but they're really a rationalization of what you said, they're really blaming of. I'm sorry if I offended you know, somebody. If yeah, or right. blaming the media that they took it out of context or whatever, instead of just I was wrong. I, I didn't have the right to. I'll, I'll give you an example. This past year, we really screwed up in a game uh, against New York at the end. Okay, we were we were up three near the end of regulation. We were supposed to foul. Um, we didn't. And then we came off of 
Reggie Bullock in the corner and he knocked down a three. We went to overtime and we lost. So I got asked about it yesterday uh, after the game. And they sort of, you know, gave me an out, you know, is, is that based on, you know, your inexperience as a team? And I said, no, I said high school players could have executed what we wanted. Well, that's true. And it had nothing to do with inexperience, but when you start comparing NBA players to high school players, you've stepped over the line. And I had to apologize to those two guys and to my team the next day that I stepped over the line. You know, they get you right after the game. You're very, very frustrated. I didn't try to say I didn't say it, any of that. I just, hey, I went over the line. I had no right to say it the way that I did. And that's it. You know, um, I think that's what you have to do is just be honest instead of, well, what I, you know, what I meant or, you know, the context of it was this. And, and look, now the media has their, you know, problems with that, too, because they do take things out of context sure. at times. And they're looking for the hot take and the gotcha moment and everything else. But nonetheless, I still just I just can't think of a moment where and this isn't just in coaching where your best course of action, in my opinion, is to lie. I just don't I just don't see that avoid. Yes, you're you know, you don't have to answer any question you don't want to answer. That's any of us. But but to lie to somebody, I don't. I don't buy it. And I see, I think people see through it. I, I think I see through it. I think I have a pretty good gauge of when people are BS in me. So, you know, I, I, and I think most people do. And so just keep yourself out of that problem. So I, I've always felt that, you know, players, especially, but really anybody can have a lot of complaints about me um, as a coach and they can be very, very valid and everything else. But I really don't think I've got anybody out there who's saying, yes, Stan wasn't honest with me. Stan lied. I I don't I haven't really had those people out there. I haven't heard those things coming back to me um, where people thought I lied to them, because a lot of times, quite honestly, it would have been easier to tell somebody what they wanted to hear. Sure. You know, and you end up pissing them off by telling them the truth and they get very angry. And for some people, you know it really harms the relationship, but nonetheless, I didn't, I didn't lie to people. How much has being an NBA head coach changed since, since my, since you were in Miami? I mean, it feels like it's probably two completely different professions. You know, it it has and it hasn't. I mean, I I think the basics of coaching are all the same. I, I think that, I think that players are pretty much the same all the time that the, the great ones, you know, the ones who really want to be better, want to be coached. And, um, you know, I, I think what's changed, you know, since then, I mean, I got the job in Miami 2003. It's been a long time. What's changed is as much as anything is social media. Yeah. You know, and, and so these guys are constantly bombarded with things and the pressure that is on them is incredible. I mean, it really is. And so, you know, you, you have them in the building and in the right frame of mind and you're all sort of on the same page. And, 
then, you know, when they leave the building, go home from practice or go home after a game, they're reading all these other things about, you know, what this guy should be doing and everything else. So it's a constant battle against outside forces. Plus the money just becomes bigger and bigger. Yep. And everybody around the players, it's never the players to me that's a problem. Everybody around the players who has a stake in that guy's success thinks they know what somebody needs to do. So for instance, you can be talking to somebody about, Hey, you know, you got to make the right play when the help comes and you draw that second defender. Look, you got to give the ball up to the open guy. But when the guy goes home and picks up his phone or talks to the people around him, they're saying, man, you got to shoot the ball more. You got to score more. And you're, it's a constant battle more so than it was before social media really exploded. And so I actually think it's the outside forces that have changed. I really haven't had problems ever. I mean, I've been really lucky maybe in my NBA career, but I've coached really good people who were, who were coachable, who had high character. And that's not a problem. And I feel for them, they're battling all these things. And so you're trying to keep a coach happy and your teammates happy. And then all the people around you happy because they're dependent upon you. It is a, it is a tough, tough battle. I think people really underestimate um, the pressure that the people around professional athletes put on them. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it makes things difficult. And I think, unfortunately, in very, very many cases, takes a great deal of fun out of it for players. I know coaches take fun out of it for players at times. I know I have. But I also think a lot of it is the, the outside forces around them take the fun out of the game. Tell me about broadcasting. Is there... I would imagine your work-life balance is a little is a little bit better and healthier. But do you are you pouring into to broadcasting the same way you do as a head coach? Well, I mean, there's nowhere you near can't, that. Right? there's nowhere near the time commitment, and and there's there's not the the level of competition or or even the level of responsibility. So when I'm on a broadcast, you know, I mean. First of all, I'm working with two other people, you know, the play-by-play guy and our sideline person. So, you know, I worked with Ian Eagle the first couple of games. Now I'm working with Brian Anderson and Allie LaForce or Stephanie Reddy. And then, as you know, better than I do, but then there's, you know, our producer and our director and our assistant director and, you know, all the people doing this work in the background. So, I'm just one part of the team and I'm certainly not the leader of the team. So, you know, there's just not the level of responsibility when you're a head coach. I mean, and I think most head coaches feel this way, even though, you know, the players are more important than you are and your assistant coaches are really important and, and all of these things, you you still take it on your shoulders that the, the outcome is your fault and only when it doesn't work. And I don't mean that from the outside. I mean, from yourself, like I I never remember feeling, Hey, we won that game because I did a great job, but I remember feeling in most losses, I should have done this, 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 or this. And so that level of responsibility is so much different than, than doing this. I mean, there's no, 
you want to do a good job on the broadcast, but you know, you're not going to lose. So we can have two or three different teams doing a broadcast, you know, and we can all do a great job. Well, that doesn't, that's not the thing in coaching. You can't both win. You might both do a good job, but in terms of the outcome, no, you can't. One team did a better job and won and one lost. And so, yeah, it's really, really different and a lot more stressful to coach. But do you ever do you ever get done with the broadcast and, and have a regret like you would have had coaching? Like, oh, I, I wish I had said that. I can't believe I flubbed that line. Or is it does it is it just not as as? No, as I definitely do, Jake. I definitely do. And, you know, said, oh, my gosh, you know, and I even within a broadcast, you know, there's times you screw up a point you're making or I talk over the play by play guy or, you know, I don't do a good job in the open, whatever it is. I mean, I feel it several times in a broadcast. But what it comes down to, the difference, you're not going to lose. I mean, it can still be a good, successful broadcast. Just like in a game, there's a lot of mistakes and you still may win, you know. And then you'll go back and look at the mistakes, but you don't feel bad because you won the game. Well, it's the same thing in the broadcast. Yeah, I, I certainly am aware of a lot of mistakes, but we can still have a good broadcast. It's after those losses just tear you up. And, and I noticed, like, going back, like the magic, was it two summers ago on TV, they were, they were rerunning, like, the greatest games in magic history. And so – During the pandemic. Yeah, and, and so I tuned into – you know, some of the games from our playoff run in 2009, right? And it's just amazing because I can sit there and every loss I can remember, particularly the end of the game, in great detail. And the wins, I, like, forgot. Like, when we won game six to beat Cleveland to go to the finals – I mean, I forgot that that was the game that Dwight was just overwhelming. Like, I don't remember that. Now, the end of game two when we give up the three to LeBron, oh, I got that. I can tell you the play they ran and where all 10 guys on the floor were and what my mistake was. And, yeah, there's just, to me, nothing like that with the responsibility you have in terms of the losses, I haven't experienced anything like that in anything else I've done. And I, and I don't, I can't imagine how you would. I mean, that's, that, that takes a very special wiring, I think. And, and being a broadcaster is different. The the number one rule of live broadcasting, I was told a long time ago is you can't get it back. So you screw up, it's gone and you better move forward. And I guess you could apply that to sports, but Coaches don't do that. Coach, you can get it back. That's what film is for, right? You go back and well, you say, you we made this mistake it. and we're going to improve upon it. Yeah, you can improve it. And it's also, again, I mean, the level of responsibility. I mean, my decisions as a head coach can cost a team a game. I yeah. flub a line in a broadcast. Brian Anderson's going to save me. You know, Allie LaForce is going to save me. My producer is going to save me. You know, I mean, those people are going to bail me out because quite honestly, they know I'm not that good. You know, I'm inexperienced. (laughs) I haven't done that many games and they know they're carrying me. Everybody who works for me, I say, just keep working out, man, because 
I'm a heavy load to carry every night, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's just different. You know, it, it's, it's different. Yeah. They come in prepared, uh, uh, prepared to, 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 to shoulder the load. That's right. Um, I want to ask you about the magic. Um, I, I'm not sure how much you've gotten a chance to watch him, but but it's obviously a very young roster. Jamal Mosley, how much do you know about him? And and what do you like from what you've seen so far? Well, I haven't seen him a lot. I've just seen bits and pieces of three of their games, I guess. I don't know Jamal Mosley. I've heard really, really good things about it. I mean, you know, his reputation around the league from the people who, who do know him is, is very, very good, smart, really knowledgeable, upbeat guy, energetic, you know, bringing a lot of positive traits to the team. And I, I think that's always good, but particularly with a young team. So it sounds like, you know, they're in good hands there. Um, and I think they've got, you know, a lot of pretty good to good young players. I, I think the question is, um, and I don't think we have the answer yet. The question is, do you have a star? You know, is there a star there that you're going to be able to build around? So, you know, because you look at the way the NBA is constructed, I, I look at a lot of those guys right now, and I can say with pretty good confidence, even early on, oh, yeah, that guy's got a chance to be a good rotation player well that's great but who are the guys that are going to carry you who are going to be you know your your top two guys at least the top two who are you going to be able to build around and look it's early in the process I don't know is Jalen Suggs one of those guys um can Jonathan Isaac take a step offensively when he comes back and be one of those guys um I don't you know, I, I, I think, unfortunately, the problem is I'm not sure those guys exist on their roster right now, which is not which is not a killer either, because you can either take all those young guys, assets, draft picks, turn them into that guy in the trade market. Or you can, you know, maybe get a free agent down the line. That's that guy. They've certainly got a lot of good pieces. So I, I'm not saying anything, at least that I take as being critical. I just think that's their, their big uh, question going forward. Who, who can carry the load? Is team building in Orlando much different than team building in Miami? Or, you know, do you have to do it differently? I guess Orlando might be kind of an in-the-middle example, but you've been in Detroit. You know, if, if you're building in Oklahoma, you probably aren't going to get that $25 million a year free agent, right? Like it's, it, I think you have to do it differently based on your market. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's a little harder. There's no question. It's a little harder. I mean, I, I think if you look at players right now, I mean, they're going to gravitate, uh, you know, LA, Miami, the bigger cities, New York, Chicago, maybe. Um, but you know, you, you've got to hit on your draft picks when you're at those times. And you've got to do a good job with your trades and things like that. It's certainly not impossible. I mean, certainly I benefited when I was in Orlando from tremendous um, roster construction. Yep. And it was sort of done with a smattering of 
you know, different things. So obviously Dwight Howard and Jameer Nelson through the draft, um, Rashard Lewis and Hito Turkoglu as free agent signings, JJ Redick through the draft, you know, so they were able to sort of um, mix and match and everything else um, and player development too. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, I don't think even when I first got here and made the decision to keep him, that I would have seen marching Gortat becoming what he became, but the guy was such a worker and he was smart and he became very, very good. So it sort of all came together. So there, there's nothing keeping anybody in any market from being good. You just don't have the margin for error. Right. So if you're the Lakers, you know, and and also let's not underestimate the Lakers, the Knicks, people like that. The money they're bringing in in their local TV contracts and stuff. So the owners are going to make money. They don't mind going into the luxury tax. And you can do a little bit like the Yankees and Red Sox do in baseball and just buy your way out of all the mistakes you make, you know. And, and so it's easier for those teams. I would argue that with anybody, but certainly not impossible for the others to build a, a good team, you just, you have to be better at what you do. If you were a commissioner, would you like, do you think the luxury tax in the salary cap structure is, is roughly the way it should be, or would you make drastic changes to that? Well, you know, what's really, really hard is that, you know, I mean, you're the commissioner, you don't have control over that. I mean, sure. it's a collectively <laughs> bargain thing. And, and so there are some things that, that I would, I mean, I think in an ideal world, you'd want more of a football system, which is more of a hard cap type yeah. of thing and really level the playing field. That's not going to happen. I, at least not in the immediate future. I just don't see the players going for that. The one thing I think that would be fair and really help teams and the star players is that we keep the, you know, the salary cap and the luxury tax, but we get rid of the individual maximum salary. Mm. It's unfair to stars, number one, and they all know it. The problem is they're not the biggest part of the voting union. So the other guys don't want to get rid of the individual max because if they did, a guy like LeBron in his prime, somebody's going to pay him 60 or 70 million a year, yep. which if you just look at, ticket sales and revenue brought in and things they deserve. He's worth it. Yeah, he's worth it. What that would do to me if there were no individual max is it would spread these guys out around the league. You know, you would, you would not get Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving and James Harden on the same team because, you know, will they take a million less or 2 million? Yes. Less. Yeah. Will they take, 25 million less? No, they won't. And so we would, you know, I can see a world where the 30 best players would be on 30 different teams. And now you have a chance. And it would also be fair to those stars because they're the ones putting people in the seats. They're the ones that you turn on the TV to watch and everything else. And I know the stars in the league, at least some of them, even though they're making money that most of us look at is like unbelievable in the scheme of things. They think, you know, it, it's not fair. Like there's guys making 
10, 12, 15, $18 million a year. And the only reason they're making that is because those stars can't get the money. Right. You know, it would be like going to Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and say, no, Bruce, you can only make this much. So the rest of the money's now got to go, you know, to the people in the band. Like, it doesn't make sense. I think it would really help the league. Um, I don't see why the owners would vote against it. There's no difference to them if you're paying one guy or paying, you know, to, you're paying the same amount of money. But the players union, those guys are smart enough to know, like, the rest of us are going to be minimum salary. They're going to go get, you know, Kevin Durant at $70 million a year and then a couple guys at a little bit less and the rest of us are minimum guys. And so they wouldn't get through the union. But that, to me, would be the best move people could make. You mentioned uh, just a couple more before I let you go. You mentioned um, the rule changes on Twitter the other day, the unnatural basketball acts. I think we've seen that. That's been obviously it's paid huge dividends right away. It's making the game so much more watchable. Last year was just brutal. What else? Are there other are there other tweaks or rule changes you'd like to see made? Well, I think they're off to a good start. The other one I would like to see or the next one I would like to see is. We have an epidemic of take fouls on fast break. So the I turn foul. the ball over and they're off on the break. I grab the guy. Well, as we all know, like to me, when you're running a pro league, who you've got to have in mind all the time are the fans, because that's our game. The fans are our game. Without the fans, we don't, we don't have a league. Nobody makes any money and everything else. And so to me, stopping the fast breaks like that the way virtually everybody does now is taking away some of the most exciting plays we have in our game. I mean, you know, you get out on a three on two break or a two on one break, we're going to see something pretty good at the other end all the time. And guys are just grabbing guys. It happened twice in the game I had last night with the, you know, the Knicks and the Sixers and they had this. This came from – you used to see it all the time in Europe. Right. They did it automatically. Europe took it away. Two um, shots in the ball, right? Two shots in the ball out of bounds. It's a judgment call. The NBA doesn't like leaving their referees with a lot of judgment. I understand that. You know, was that an intentional foul or was he going for the ball? I would argue everything's a judgment call anyway. And our referees are pretty good. And – they may miss a few like they do with the new rules now or anything else, but it would at least eliminate the most obvious ones where I make a bad pass and I just grab the guy, you know, like let's let them get out on the break and go. I, I think that's the next step. Um, and hopefully they'll look at it. Obviously they got to work out the parameters of how to call it, but let's put the exciting plays back in the game. Stan Van Gundy cared. Didn't really care, could not care less about the top 75 list. Were you, were you, uh, were you engaged? Yeah. I mean, I'm engaged because I was a fan at a young age. So I've been, you know, probably following this. I mean, I was born in 59. So from probably at least the late sixties on. So, you know, guys like Oscar Robertson and Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain and certainly Kareem, who I was a big UCLA fan in college. I like I saw those guys play. Now, you didn't get a chance at that time to see them as much as you get to see guys today. Right. So 
most of the people on that list I've seen play at some point, you know, now I didn't see, or at least I don't remember. I know I didn't see Paul Arizon. I didn't see Bob Cousy. Uh, actually when Cousy was, I think a player coach late in his career, really old. I think I saw him, but you know, I, I didn't see those guys, but most of the people on the list. So yeah, I had great interest. I don't care if you make it 50 or 75 or a hundred, there's always going to be the next line of guys. And there's always going to be arguments of who should get in yeah, and who shouldn't get in. Um, and look, it, if you didn't have those arguments, it would only be because people aren't interested. So it's true. Any, like I used to say that with people criticizing coaches, like, like I never really had a problem with it. First of all, I thought I was more critical of myself than fans were. Second of all, you got to be interested to, to criticize interest is good, you know? And um, so you're always going to have those things. Um, I just don't like it. It's tough because, you know, you don't want to be disparaging guys who are on the list. Exactly. Like in order to argue for Dwight to be on, you got to argue for AD or whoever to be off. And then it turns into tearing down Anthony Davis. That's the thing that bugged me about it. Yeah. And you know, you don't want, listen, all, I can say this confidently, the 75 guys on that list are great, great, great players, all time greats and deserve to be celebrated. And that can be true. And it also can be true that guys like Dwight and Vince Carter have great claims to being on. I mean, it's pretty tough to leave Dwight off a, a top 75 list. That really is. I mean, you know, you're talking about a guy that was first team all NBA five times, five straight years. Like, just go back through how many guys have have done that. A three-time defensive player of the year. Lead the league in rebounding and block shots in the same year. He's in, you know, what, eight or nine-time all-star. Like, he's the leading active rebounder in the league. Like, this guy was outstanding that was probably the most surprising, but Vince really surprised me. Same. Also, you and know, Tracy, you know, we, we had all these ties here. Now, Tracy, obviously injuries cut his career short, but I'm sitting there going, boy, when I first started working in the NBA, it was Tracy and LeBron, uh, Tracy and Kobe, excuse me, were the two guys up here. A few years when I sort of first started working for the Magic full time, it was Dwight and LeBron were the two sort of unquestioned top guys in the league. And granted, that's just a perception, but I mean, I'm 37 years old. I haven't seen too many better than Tracy and Dwight. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, you're always gonna, gonna have that. I, I think the measurement to me should be, you know, how great you were in your era and your time. That's why I look at things like all NBA selections right. and, you know, all defense selections and MVP awards and things like that. And, when I see a guy like Dwight, who's first team all NBA five straight years, I'm saying, okay, how many other guys in a five year period, you know, had that kind of success, you know, and, and that's also why that's how I defend some of the, you know, players of the early eras of the NBA, like 
certainly by t- if you just drop those guys that played in the 40s and 50s into today's game, they wouldn't be nearly as good. I mean, it's just evolution. Players right. keep getting better. Bigger, and probably stronger. in all reality, the top 75 players in the NBA have all played in the last 20 years, if you really want to get into it. But that's not the standard. And so it should be how dominant you were in your era. And by that measure, Dwight not being there and his career certainly long enough to have qualified. I just, I have a, I have a problem with it. I mean, how many, how many guys of that era from the early two thousands through now have had better careers than Dwight's had? I mean, not that many, you know, and, and, and that's the, you have to think that's the best time in the NBA in terms of players. Uh, so yeah, I, I was surprised by it. I'm not one that's going to yell and scream about it because I don't want to point out guys that that shouldn't be in. Right. Uh, but I think we have a problem with the same thing with the Hall of Fame. Guys get in, and then there's guys with better credentials that don't get in. And I think sometimes it becomes popularity contests. And um, I think that's unfortunate because even if the fans just sort of like it and interested and it's not a big it's a big deal to the players believe me all-star games are a big deal to the players hall of fame's a big deal to the players you know and the whole thing and so i think the people that do the voting on those things need to really check themselves and be really objective and have solid criteria to go back and and check um I plan to do that over the next couple of weeks is take those top 75 and some of the other guys we talked about and really look at it. Cause I haven't seen anybody put it out, you know, nice. in a detailed form and I haven't had the time, but I want to look at it just to see, because yeah, there's some people on there that and Dwight being number one in my mind. That That's what be. we call a tease in, in, in the broadcasting business. Stand. Yeah, You're getting good here. Is, by the time I get through it, everybody will have forgotten about it's gonna be January. No, it'll come back in February because they're going to bring them all to the All Star Game. Yeah, so interest in it will will come back a little bit. Um, in Cleveland, in Cleveland, I was there in '97 when the when the 50 greatest were there. I was a little 13 year old buck trying to sneak into the dunk contest. Well, there you go. I mean, and it's uh, you know the top 50. It was the same thing because. Yep. You know, I remember being upset then. I'd worked with Bob McAdoo in Miami, and Bob was left off the top 50. And I I thought that was a travesty. There's just always – I don't care. If we did the top 250 in the NBA, we'd have people – well, what about these guys? 251. That's exactly right. And and we've got – we've had enough great players in this league to go to about any number you want. I. I think I read something, could be wrong, but I think I read something. There have been about 6,400 players play in the NBA in the history of the NBA. We're trying to get it down to 75. I mean, yeah. I mean, so there's clearly going to be guys who were great, dominant guys in their era who aren't on that list. And it's an incredible honor for guys who are on there. Well, I'm looking forward to, uh, to your, uh, Autopsy <laughs> your postmortem of the top 75 list. It'll be good. Uh, good television, good content for sure. Stan, so much. 
thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It's great catching up. Uh, it's fun watching you. You're doing an outstanding job. And hopefully we can talk soon again. All right. Thanks, Jake. <laughs>